be reading this morning from Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, I'll read verses 1 through 32. Hear the word of the Lord. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quinarius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, every one to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered, and she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. Behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. And when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Now when the days of her purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was just and devout waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Christ is born. You know, we say things like this, and sometimes we don't think through what it means that Christ is has been born. We use the term Christ so often in our preaching, our teaching, and our conversation as Christians that sometimes it comes to be just a name and we forget the significance of the meaning of the term Christ. 
We've just read in Luke's account uh, the birth and presentation of the child Jesus in the temple in Jerusalem. And I'm not going to go through this text verse by verse, but I do want to call attention to a few key verses in this text and consider the implications of what is said here. And primarily what I want us to see this morning is this, that as we've worked through Genesis over the last several months and seen the promises that were made there to Adam and Eve in the garden and then to Abraham, I want us to see this morning that God's promise to bless the nations is fulfilled in the seed of Abraham, who is Christ the Lord. And so what I want us to see is that that promise is fulfilled, and I want us to look at some of the details of its fulfillment, and I want to do so by focusing on three things in this text. The role of Caesar Augustus in the birth of Christ, the announcement made to the shepherds and their response to it, And then finally, this man Simeon and his response to the infant Christ. And always with this in mind, that God's promise to bless the nations is fulfilled in this seed of Abraham, who is Christ the Lord. Now, before we go any further into this, I want to make a distinction. Francis Turretin was a theologian in the 17th century who wrote a massive Uh, work of theology titled The Institutes of Elinctic Theology. Now, elinctic comes from the Greek and simply means uh, to convict of guilt. And so what he wrote was a systematic theology meant to teach doctrine of the Christian faith, but he intended for it to be read not necessarily by Christians, but by those of other faiths. And so this systematic theology was intended to convict them of their sin and bring them to repentance and faith in Christ. And in this massive work, he repeatedly uses the phrase, we distinguish, uh, to say we distinguish between this and this. And so it's become somewhat of a running joke in theological circles to say we distinguish. There are even t-shirts that have been made uh, with those words on them. But it is a valid uh, and useful tool in our theological toolbox as we think through the scriptures and what we have learned of God there. Sinclair Ferguson, uh, in his book, The Trinitarian Devotion of John Owen, says this, right understanding always involves making careful distinctions. Right understanding always involves making careful distinctions. So I want to make a distinction between God keeping a promise and God fulfilling a promise. It's a minor distinction, but it's an important one. When God keeps a promise, that means that he has done what he said he would do on the face of it. But for God to fulfill a promise means that he has done all that was implied in the types and the shadows in the keeping of the promise, but which ultimately pointed forward to Christ and finds its end in him. So God promised Abraham in Genesis 22, which we looked at last night, blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed 
And God kept this promise by making the ethnic nation of Israel, descended from Abraham, a great nation with many millions of citizens who conquered the promised land. And that's what it means to possess the gates of their enemies, the gates being the entrance to the city. So if you possess the gates, you've conquered the city. They were a blessing to the nations because by them, the scriptures were preserved And finally, Christ was born. So in that way, God kept his promise. But the promise is fulfilled in Christ, who is the seed who blesses the nations by bringing salvation to all men, regardless of their ethnicity. And he possesses the gate of his enemy. That is, he defeats Satan so that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church, which is his body. And the church is comprised of all those who believe and trust in Christ throughout time and space, terrible as an army with banners, to use C.S. Lewis's terminology. So they are indeed a great multitude. So you can see how the promise is kept in the physical descendants of Abraham, but it is fulfilled in Christ and his church. So that's the distinction I want to make between keeping and filling as we look at a few of the particulars this morning of the birth of Christ. Some of them are promises that were made to Abraham and to David, but are fulfilled in Christ. So let's begin with the role played here by Caesar Augustus in the birth of the Savior. The Old Testament is filled with these foreshadows and and types and direct prophecies concerning the coming of the Messiah. Genesis told us that he would be the seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15, the seed of Abraham. And so we know that the one that God would send to set right what had gone wrong in the garden would be born as a human and from the line of Abraham. Well, later in Scripture, we're told that he would be of the line of David. And so we see a promise that is made to David in 1 Chronicles 22. Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest, and I will give him rest from all his enemies all around. His name shall be Solomon, for I will give peace and quietness to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name, and he shall be my son, and I will be his father. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. Now this is one of those promises that was kept in David's son Solomon, but is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. Solomon eventually dies and is buried. But later, the prophets applied this promise to another seed of David who was yet to come. Jeremiah writes, saying, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. And in Isaiah 9, we read this, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So these are prophecies of the one to come, a descendant of King David, to inherit the throne and to rule as king. 
And this is the promised Savior who will bring peace between God and man, atoning for the sins of his people and reconciling them to their God. But then the prophets specify that this Savior, this King to come, would be born in Bethlehem. Micah writes and says, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Now the point is, for God's promise to be fulfilled, the Messiah must be born of the line of David and in the town of Bethlehem. And so we come to Joseph and Mary in our text this morning. Joseph is of the line of David. Mary is as well, for the angel told her that she would give birth to a son and that the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. So this child to be born would be of the line of David. But in order for the promise to be fulfilled, he must be born in the town of Bethlehem. Now this is where Caesar Augustus plays a role. The first three verses of our text tell us this. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quinarius was governor of Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. So everyone was to return to their ancestral home to register for this census, which was probably for the purpose of levying a new tax on the various regions of the Roman Empire based on their population. Now, given the prophecies that had been made concerning the birth of the Savior in the city of Bethlehem, had Joseph and Mary just on their own decided we're going to pack up and move to Bethlehem before the child is born, that would have seemed somewhat contrived. It would have been like, well, they're they're just doing that so that their son will be born in this town so that they can claim for him that he is the fulfillment of these prophecies. But that's not what happened. What happened was is that God used a pagan king, the emperor of Rome, to issue an edict that forced Joseph and Mary to go to Bethlehem just in time for Jesus to be born in the exact location spoken of by the prophets. John Calvin comments on this, and it's worth quoting at length. He says, Augustus orders a registration to take place in Judea, and each person to give his name that they may afterwards pay an annual tax, which they were formerly accustomed to pay to God. Thus, an ungodly man takes forcible possession of that which God was accustomed to demand from his people. It was, in effect, reducing the Jews to entire subjugation and forbidding them to be thenceforth reckoned as the people of God. Matters have been brought in this way to the last extremity, and the Jews appear to be cut off and alienated forever from the covenant of God. At that very time, does God suddenly, and contrary to universal expectation, afford a remedy. What is more, he employs a wicked tyrant for the redemption of his people. For the governor or whoever was employed by Caesar for this purpose, while he executes the commission entrusted to him, is, unknown to himself, God's herald to call Mary to the place which God had appointed. What an amazing act of providence on the part of God. He uses the act of a wicked pagan king who is subjugating the people of God to bring to fulfillment 
the prophecy concerning the location of the birth of the Savior. So Joseph and Mary end up in Bethlehem, and she gives birth to the promised son who will bless the nations, and the nations play a role in bringing him to the place where the prophecy may be fulfilled. Now let's turn our attention to the shepherds, unlikely recipients of the first public announcement of the birth of the Savior of the world. Well, not really that unlikely if we think about it. As far back as Genesis 4, we learned that Abel was a shepherd. Abraham was a shepherd. Jacob and his 12 sons are shepherds. David was a shepherd before he became king. And when he was anointed as king, the Lord said to David, you shall shepherd my people, Israel. God later spoke through the prophet Micah, saying of the one who would come to be ruler and king, and he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord. The promised Messiah was to be a shepherd for the people of God. So, It really isn't surprising then that the first public announcement of the birth of the Savior would be made to a group of shepherds. A group of shepherds receives the news that the good shepherd has been born. So an angel appears to them and he announces this good news. And verse 11 is the one that I want us to pay special attention to. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now, this is a verse that we're very familiar with, but it's an incredible verse, and it's packed with wonderful good news of the Savior. First note that the angel tells the shepherds, for there is born to you, born to you, not simply that he is born, not born to his mother or his parents, not born to the religious leaders, but born to you a group of shepherds in the field. The Messiah, the promised one, is born to you. His birth is for you. Yes, he's born to Joseph and Mary. His birth is a public event, though, because he's a public figure. He's the promised Messiah, the Savior of the world, the one who will bless all the nations of the world, the mediator and head of the new covenant, So this is no private event. Christ is born to you. He was born to the shepherds in the field, to the nation of Israel awaiting their Messiah, but he was born to the nations, including all of those who believe, even today, including you and I. Christ is born to you. And he's born in the city of David, which tells the shepherds that this is the promised son of David, the good shepherd who will sit on the throne. He is the king of kings. His kingdom will have no end. He will rule with justice and righteousness, unlike any king they have known in their lifetime. Their entire lives has been under the authority of a foreign king, an emperor in Rome. This child who is born will not be like any earthly king in their experience. In fact, he won't be like any politician that we've ever known. This child is a ruler whose authority is beyond that of any earthly ruler. His kingdom will never end and his throne will endure forever. All things are put beneath his feet, for he has authority over all things in earth 
and in heaven. This is indeed the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he's not merely a ruler, but a savior. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a savior. He didn't come to save them from Rome, but from something far worse. Matthew records for us that when the angel visited Joseph and told him of the coming child, he said that Mary would bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus for or because he will save his people from their sins. He will save his people. He will deliver them from their sins, not from corrupt politicians, not from foreign rule, not from persecution or oppressive taxation, but from their sins. All of those other things that we might want to be saved and delivered from are things that are imposed on us from the outside. But our sins are ours. Christ came to save his people from their own sins, which condemned them before a holy God. This means that somehow... He must atone for those sins so that we may be forgiven and made righteous before God. Now, of course, we know that he accomplishes this by offering himself as a substitute, sacrificed in our place so that when we trust ourselves to him, the punishment due our sins is fulfilled in his death. And his righteousness is credited to us so that we are saved from the justly deserved wrath of a holy God. So he is born to us as both king and savior. But then it continues. The angel says, there is born to you this day in the city of David a savior who is Christ. Now, as I said at the beginning, Christ is not a name. It's a title. It's the Greek equivalent of the word Messiah. When Andrew first meets Jesus, John records that he first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. Messiah or Christ, Hebrew and Greek, both mean the same thing. They mean the anointed one or the chosen one. That is, he is the one that God had chosen and anointed to be the savior of the world who would crush the head of the serpent all the way back in Genesis 3, 15. He is the long-awaited promised seed the one who by God's appointment will set all things right, who will succeed where Adam had failed as the head of the covenant people, where Moses had failed as the prophet of God, where Aaron had failed as the priest of God, and where David had failed as the king. Christ will accomplish all of this. He will be prophet, priest, and king forever. For indeed, he is Christ the Lord He's not just a man, the son of Abraham and the son of David, but he is also the son of God, both man and God. And this is what we call the hypostatic union. The eternal son of God took to himself a human nature. The human nature and the divine nature united in the person of the son. But those two natures, the human nature and the divine nature, are joined, but they are not mingled Our confession of faith says this, so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person 
without conversion, that means they're not changed, or confusion, that means they're not mingled together, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man? And what this means is that Christ's person as the second member of the Trinity, as the eternal Son of God, is unchanged. His divine nature is unchanged, but his human nature is unchanged as well. They're joined, never to be separated, but his divine nature didn't lose any of his divinity by taking to himself a human nature. And his human nature did not become superhuman. It didn't become something other than a human being by virtue of being joined to the second person of the Godhead. He is fully human. And so he is a fitting substitute for this, to be sacrificed in our place. But he is also fully God. So he is a perfect sacrifice. No sin or blemish in him. So he remains Christ, the anointed one, prophet, priest, and king forever. This verse, verse 11, is densely packed with amazing truths about this baby born in Bethlehem all those years ago. And so the shepherds, they hear this announcement from the angels. And they decide, we're going to go into town to see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. Well, I would think so. If you had just received an announcement like this from the angels, you would want to go see for yourself. And so they do. And they go into town and they find the child just as the angel had said. And what is their response to seeing God's Christ come in the flesh? Well, it tells us in verse 16, they came with haste and they found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now, when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. They went and told everyone who would listen the good news of Christ. The Messiah, the promised seed, the Savior, the King has been born. I'm sure that this saying they made known was not, hey, there's a baby that was born and laid in a manger. There's no great news in that. A baby born into a poor family that can't afford a proper place to lay their child? No, the good news is that the Savior has come. God's Christ, the promised one, the Messiah that we have been waiting for so long has finally come. The King has come. He is both God and man, the Savior who will crush the head of the serpent and deliver his people from their sins. God's promise to bless the nations is fulfilled. And this seed of Abraham, who is Christ the Lord. Now, eight days after his birth, Jesus is circumcised and officially named Jesus, which is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua, which means the Lord saves. Then we find at the end of Mary's purification, 40 days after the birth, they take Jesus to the temple in Jerusalem to dedicate him. And when they enter the temple, they meet there an elderly man by the name of Simeon in verse 25. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. So he is a just man a man of upright character who does what is right. 
and he is devout, which means that he was serious about worshiping God. Literally translated, that word means to take hold of well. In other words, he clung to God and to God's word and God's promises with tenacity and vigor. And it says that the Holy Spirit was upon him. He was filled with the Spirit of God and communion with God. And so it had been revealed to him that he would not taste death until he had seen the promised Messiah with his own eyes. Verse 26, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And so he waits. And then one day the Spirit moves him to go to the temple at that exact time when he would meet there Joseph and Mary as they brought Jesus to dedicate him. And it says in verse 28 that he took him up in his arms and blessed God. So he takes the young child, the Savior of the world, he holds him up, and then he makes what amounts to a prophetic announcement in verses 29 through 32. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Now, verse 32 is the one that I want us to focus on. But before I do, I want to back up just a moment to verse 25 again. It said that he was full of the Holy Spirit, but that he was waiting. He was waiting Israel had been waiting for 2,000 years for the promised Messiah. Humanity had been waiting since Genesis 3.15 when the promise was first made to Adam and Eve in the garden. In all that time, we had been waiting for the promised seed, the serpent-crushing Savior, the one anointed by God to be prophet, priest, and king. But Simeon, we're told, is waiting for the consolation of Israel. Now, what does that mean? Is he waiting for some sort of consolation prize? Well, no. Consolation is the noun form of the verb to console. Now, if you console someone, it means you offer them comfort and encouragement in an effort to alleviate loss and pain. So what does it mean to say that Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel? He's waiting for comfort and encouragement for the nation of Israel to alleviate their loss and their pain. Now it's clear from the context that he was waiting for the Messiah, for the Christ to be born. This Messiah, this promised Savior, would comfort and encourage God's people. He would relieve their distress. He was rightly their consolation. This is a term that was in use by the Jews at that time to refer to the Messiah. They would call him the consolation of Israel. They expected him to relieve their distress, but they might have been a little confused about what that distress was. Not that Simeon was confused. I don't believe that he was, but in general, the Jews were a little confused. They believed the Messiah would deliver them politically from Roman oppression, that he would establish the kingdom again as an earthly kingdom as it had been under King David. But what he had actually come to do was to deliver them, to deliver God's people from their sins and to establish the kingdom for what it was always meant to be, a nation of priests mediating the presence of God to the rest of humanity, 
showing them how to be reconciled to their creator. Simeon was waiting for the one to come who would do what Adam had failed to do, what Israel itself had failed to do. Israel had been met to be a nation of priests. God had called them this in the Old Testament. They were not to keep the knowledge of God to themselves, but they were to spread it abroad so that all the world might hear the name of the Lord and that men of all nations might come to know and serve him. This was a reflection of the original mandate that was given to Adam in the garden. He was to tend and keep the garden, but also to take dominion over the earth, to expand the borders of the garden until the whole earth had become a temple filled with worshipers of God. This is what the Messiah was coming to do. Israel had failed at this task, but Christ would succeed. He would fill the earth with worshipers. He would set things right. He would bring salvation to the nations. It wasn't just ethnic Israel that had suffered the wrath of God and exile from the land. All of humanity had suffered. Adam and Eve and us along with them had been exiled from the garden. The garden was the temple where the presence of God dwelt. And so all of humanity is in exile and waiting for the promised one who would restore us to a right relationship with our creator. As the prophet Isaiah had written, and in that day you will say, O Lord, I will praise you. Though you were angry with me, your anger is turned away and you comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For Yah, the Lord, is my strength and song. He also has become my salvation. The Messiah was the consolation of Israel. But it wasn't to be limited to the physical descendants of Abraham, but to all who would believe. As Isaiah had written in Isaiah 49, 6, speaking of the servant of the Lord, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Judah, the tribes of Jacob, and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. Too small a thing that you should restore Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. And that's what Simeon knows. This child that he holds in his hands is that one the Lord's Christ, who had come not just as a national and political savior, but to be a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. God's promise to bless the nations was fulfilled in this child, in Christ the Lord. A light to bring revelation to the Gentiles. The nations of the world had been in darkness, the darkness of ignorance, They were without the revealed word of God, without the word to light their paths, as Paul expressed this morning in CLA. We walked in darkness of unbelief and a pagan religion. But now the Lord's Christ, the Lord's anointed one, had come. The Son of Righteousness had arisen to shine upon all nations that we might know the truth of God and no longer live in darkness. The good news, the gospel of the Lord's Christ was that salvation had come not just to the Jews, but to all men. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, John writes. 
This baby had been born not only to the religious elites, but to the shepherds in the field. He had been born not only to the Jews, but to all the nations. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The light of the revelation of God was given to the nations in the form of his only Son, the Lord of glory, sent to be born in a humble human family in Bethlehem, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. This baby that Simeon held in his hands was the maker of the sun, the moon, and the stars, and yet he outshone them all in the brightness of his glory. Israel had enjoyed the honor of being God's people. He had revealed himself to them. They had experienced God's mighty deeds throughout their history. They had what the Apostle Paul calls a chief advantage. That is, to them were committed the oracles of God. The rest of the nations of the earth had been left in darkness. But Israel had the word of God. They had the light of his word to guide them. And now, the Redeemer, the promised seed, the Messiah, God in the flesh, had been born among them. This was the purpose for which the nation existed, to bring forth the Messiah so that he might spread that light to the nations. He was indeed their glory. All the nations of the earth are blessed because of this one child born into one of the smallest towns in the small nation of Israel. God's promise to bless the nations is fulfilled in the seed of Abraham, who is Christ the Lord. A light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And for this we should be thankful, for we are among those nations to whom the light has come because of the birth of the Savior just as the shepherds were filled with joy and wonder and widely spread abroad the news of his birth, so we also should be filled with wonder. Wonder that the Savior has come and that his coming means that the light of the Lord has been spread to us. We, we who once were not the children of God have now been made the children of God. We were once afar off, and now we have been brought near. Our eyes have seen God's salvation. As Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness. At the creation, who said, Let there be light. That God has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What a wonderful, amazing truth. The king has come. Let us crown him as king and kneel before him in glory in the light of his gospel. Let's pray.